Welcome to the Populist Perspective. I'm Tomas Reikatz. Let's get into the news. First, after the devastating attack on Israel by Hamas, many are wondering why the military uh, was not present at the border when this happened. And uh, much of the blame has been placed on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for diverting military spending to the West Bank uh, for the past several years. Uh, Netanyahu was elected on a message of safety for Israelis. This is a real quote from him. He's quoted as saying, quote, I would like to be re remembered as the protector of Israel. And now we have seen that despite this messaging, Netanyahu has not done enough to stop terror organizations like Hamas in Gaza. And instead, he has tried to send those military forces into the West Bank so he can seize power and he can colonialize the West Bank. And the biggest drawback out of all of this outside of the freedom of the Palestinians that live in the West Bank, is that in the Gaza Strip, uh, the border is now wide open for these kinds of things to happen in the future. And uh, for the past three years, Netanyahu has been enacting this plan to send the military into the West Bank. And by doing this, he has put Israeli lives into jeopardy, and he has diverted the military from that border with Hamas. And if there's anything that can really be taken away from this, it is that should this terrible event that happened recently ever happen again, it will be, I think, imperatively obvious that uh, the Israeli government has not done enough to protect its citizens. And I think when you look at how the structure of the Israeli military has led this uh, to being a problem to begin with, I think that uh, it is really important that whoever comes after Netanyahu re-diverts the Israeli military to the place where it is really needed in order to protect the Israeli citizens. And uh, I think that when we look at how long uh, various foreign officials have warned Israel about this, have warned about an impending attack, and yet Netanyahu has continued to send more and more forces into the West Bank, has sent Israeli citizens into the West Bank, where they are in significant danger, where they are not as safe as they may be in Israel mainland. You really have to start questioning Netanyahu's motives here. And this dates back uh, all the way to the formation of Israel and the initial uh, plan that was divide, devised where certain land was given to Palestine and certain land was given to Israel. And as those borders shifted, we saw by multiple prime ministers a lot of pushing into the land that was initially designated for Palestine in that original 1940s treaty. And 
the end result of that has been that the borders with terror organizations like Hamas have gone unprotected. And uh, while it is imperative to, you know, blame Hamas for this, as they are the definitive uh, organization that was responsible for this attack, it's also important to question why that attack wasn't stopped and why Israel wasn't prepared for it to begin with. And so being prepared means knowing where the Israeli military should be and knowing the best way to protect those Israelis. And that's a criticism that's come from deep within Israel as well. And we've seen Netanyahu's poll numbers absolutely obliterated uh, following this attack. And we've seen many, many people inside of Israel, outside of Israel, criticize Netanyahu for not stopping this when it was happening and not being prepared for this. And that's really what this boils down to, is this was a horrible, horrible atrocity committed by uh, an actually mostly Iranian-funded uh, terrorist organization that just happens to be in the land designated to uh, Palestine or, you know, not, not necessarily agreed upon because the state of Palestine in and of itself is kind of uh, a question that a lot of people have um, sort of tried to push under the rug. But in the land that is often referred to as Palestine, the sort of Iranian-backed terror organization, definitely responsible for this attack. And because this is, because this is such a horrific attack, it is important to know why the military wasn't there to meet it and to stop it from happening and how we can prevent future attacks like this from happening in the future. So that's uh, Israel next. Since our last show in September, a lot has happened in the U.S. House of Representatives. We have seen Speaker Kevin McCarthy being removed by a motion to vacate issued by Matt Gates of Florida. And Gates is known for such harrowing moments as receiving a DUI in 2008 uh, and getting arrested for that and allegedly sex trafficking a 17-year-old. So real, real harrowing stuff. Uh, a fighter for truth and liberty everywhere. Since then, uh, we have seen the House of Representatives in complete disarray. Candidates for Speaker are failing left and right, or rather, right and crazy. And uh, said candidates have included Steve Scalise of Louisiana and Jim Jordan of Ohio, who has had an uh, especially spectacular fail after threatening primaries against uh, all those that didn't vote for him. And, uh, I mean, it is, it is honestly kind of absurd that this kind of thing uh, has happened. You know, we've seen party infighting before, but this is just at such a momentous scale, such a large scale, and you, <laughs> you see this kind of thing happening, and it just completely obliterates the, you know, 
the bar, which was already touching the ground, the bar for House Republicans is now in the dirt, buried about 10 feet deep. And this level of just complete disarray and chaos issued by the far right has uh, essentially taken over the government's ability to do anything. New laws can't get passed without the House. And uh, there is no way that the House can conduct its, uh, its ne necessary duties without a speaker. And so uh, it, this, is, this is absurd, really, is what it is. It's an absurd mess. And uh, many people have tried to solve it so far, many re re Republicans. But I guess they figured out at this point that their party barely exists anymore. And what's left of it is chopped up between all of these different blocks so that they can't really coalesce behind anyone. Although I bet if Donald Trump ran for Speaker of the House, everyone would fall in line, such as you know, how the cult of Trump operates these days. But uh, with the question as to whether Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan should be the next Speaker, both have actually failed. And now what we see is the most obscure people, people who honestly... I think the majority of the U.S. population barely knew existed. And we've seen them all stick their heads out, all running for speaker at once. They see this opening and they say, this is my moment. This is where me, the 87th representative from who knows where, uh, now has the ability to become speaker of the House. And of course, they don't have the ability to become speaker of the House, but they think that they do. They think that they, that, uh, they do. And so we end up here. Um, but uh, one name that has stuck out a lot is Patrick uh, McHenry, who is the current Speaker Pro Tempore. And a lot of people have wished to give McHenry temporary powers to govern, while others uh, scream, cry, and call him a rhino. And uh, one uh, facet of this has been a vote that happened recently to give McHenry these powers, and it failed. And if this continues, uh, where uh, the GOP can't decide on who to lead their party, this won't just be bad for them. I mean, of course it will be bad for them, but it'll be bad for everybody. And the ability for the House to not function is why we should never give this party control of anything ever again. And when you look at the other end of the coin, every single Democrat, every single Democrat has voted for Hakeem Jeffries. No question about it. None. If Democrats were in charge, Jeffries would have been in power since day one, right? It took, it took try after try after try to get McCarthy speaker. Now he's out and now there's nobody. And they probably won't settle on somebody for a while. Uh, based off of how things have been going so far. And if this is any indication, the only real solution to this has to be to get Democrats into power in the House in 2024. And that is, that is just without saying, I think, uh, 
when it comes to this kind of absolute lunacy that we're seeing um, in this just this this hellscape of uh, you know a, a mockery really of a functioning government that we can't allow to continue. That is the U.S. House. Next, uh, two major lawyers for Donald Trump have pled guilty to the charge to the uh, charges levied against them. We have Sidney Powell, who is known for her books exposing corruption in the DOJ, and she now holds seven felony counts. So that's kind of ironic in and of itself. And uh, she is the more well-known of the two, uh, and she makes regular appearances on cable news. Uh, she is someone who we've actually talked about before when she was uh, arrested a while ago and she got her mugshot taken. And uh, she is someone who I think, the, I think the DOJ has wanted to go after for a while. And so this guilty plea is definitely going to help them not just catch her, but also use her to get after uh, Donald Trump, who, of course, is the you know, mafia boss, so to speak, of this entire operation. And by the way, this comes just months after all the indictments uh, against the uh, former president uh, and we've made video after video about that already. You can go watch those after this. But uh, we've seen more than, sorry, we've seen uh, second lawyer Kenneth Chaseborough also get seven criminal charges. And he has donated more than $50,000 to the GOP. Uh, and that's even considering the fact that he isn't even a member of the GOP currently. He's an independent. And before that, he was a Democrat. But he's donated a cumulative, a cumulative total sum of $50,000. So hopefully $5,000 restitution won't hit him that hard. Um, overall, these two lawyers uh, have the potential to take Trump down, but neither of them are shoe-ins. Uh, I think Chase Bro is probably the more likely of the two, considering that uh, absolutely nothing that Sidney Powell says can you know, even be given a grain of salt, really. Uh, every single word that comes out of her mouth, it just it feels often, oftentimes like a game of Mad Lips, uh, where these lies feel so preposterous that it's kind of crazy to think that a human came up with them. A, a real, a real human person decided to uh, just come up with these absolutely just crazy claims, and real people believe them too, and uh, that's what this world has come to, uh, where News Corp's fantasy show, uh, a fantasy show, dominates the airwaves and brainwashes millions. That's a side point. Overall, these two lawyers. Uh, while their sort of inconsistencies so far don't make them necessarily the best candidates, they definitely have the ability to help take down Trump in uh, a criminal prosecution of him. One in, uh, I think, most likely the Georgia one, since that's what they're being arrested for. Um, and... This is still a very new developing story, um, but it's part of a, a much larger 
sort of web that's developed over the past several months involving Trump, involving uh, former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, who, uh, if Sidney Powell is like this level of crazy, Rudy is just through the roof. Um, but we've seen, he's also gotten arrested for similar things. And uh, he hasn't pled guilty to anything yet, but we'll see if that's maybe on the table. It would honestly be very, very funny to watch Rudy Giuliani uh, on the witness stand going against Donald Trump. That would definitely be one of the just absolutely uh, craziest moments of this decade so far. And um, this is this is just something where you, you, you read this kind of thing and you, you, think you're, you, you think to yourself, imagine trying to explain this to someone in 2015, any of this. Uh, and it, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I mean, obviously it's good that these lawyers are being used to help take down the criminal mastermind, but the fact that we had to get here to begin with is also just kind of absurd. But that's a developing story. Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chaseborough are the two lawyers. Next, we have Democrats doing surprisingly well in the South. Now, this is not necessarily something specific to, the, to uh, these two weeks, but this is something that has been happening over the past, for some of these states, several years. But for some of these, very, very recently, We've seen a lot of polling coming out in a lot of southern states. And we've seen a lot of states starting to sort of go into that process of turning blue, which if you know anything about U.S. history and how the South has played a fundamental role for the GOP since 19, was 1972, this is an absolute shock, a good, a good one, but uh, completely unexpected. And uh, let's dive into each of these one at a time. We have uh, several states. We have Kentucky, we have Texas, Mississippi, North Carolina, and the already bluer state of uh, Virginia, but still one that has a popular uh, GOP governor. And we're going to look into all those right now. First, Kentucky. Democratic Governor Andy Bashir has been polling extremely well against his rival, Daniel Cameron, especially considering that we're talking about Kentucky. And uh, what, and this does have, I think, some, something to do with uh, the Bashir name, which is uh, a very large political name in Kentucky. And so that is, of course, always going to factor into this kind of a thing. And uh, Andy Bashir is about as blue dog of a Democrat as you can get. He is, uh, he's actually pretty notably uh, pretty iffy on abortion. And that's something that sort of allows him to have that more uh, sort of, you know, when it comes to Kentucky, more mainstream appeal to the uh, very large conservative uh, population there, and also uh, still able to 
uh, fight the GOP on those key issues that uh, re really intrinsically matter when it comes to a state like Kentucky. And it is kind of sad that, you know, in order to get someone like him into office, there are some, some of those types of things you have to sacrifice policy-wise. But Andy Bashir is definitely, I'd say, about as far left as you can go in that kind of a state. And so it is absolutely great to see that he is polling so well in Kentucky. And this extends way past him as well. We've seen in uh, Virginia, the state Senate has a pretty good chance of staying Democratic, even with a popular GOP governor. And Mississippi is probably the most shocking of, the, of, the, of all of these. We have a tight race between the, the GOP incumbent, Tate Reeves, which Tate Reeves is just, <laughs> that, that, that is just, if, if, if I were to close my eyes and you were to ask me to name just what a hypothetical GOP governor name might be, Tate Reeves would definitely be top five of that. That is just, that, that, that's almost, that it's, it is, that it's, it's, it's uh, kind of hilarious how spot on that is um, to the sort of persona of a GOP governor. Um, anyway, but uh, Brandon Presley has been doing very, very well. Uh, that race is essentially neck and neck. And Mississippi is about as red as you can get. Definitely core deep in that red wall. And meanwhile, we've had Texas and North Carolina following Georgia's example. And both of them seem poised to relatively soon, maybe not next election year, but soon, both seem poised to become swing states. And every single election within the past few We've seen each inching and inching towards the middle. We've seen the GOP winning by less and less in each state, every presidential election so far. And all of this brings up the question of why. Why is this happening? Well, let's look at Kevin Phillips, uh, the recently dead architect of the Southern Strategy, who created uh, this originally for uh, President Nixon's re-election campaign which was very, very successful. I believe the only places he lost were uh, the District of Columbia and right here in uh, Massachusetts. And um, the, the way that Kevin Phillips created this strategy was he helped to appeal to white Southern voters through very specific ways of uh, saying things, ways of uh, using dog whistles to appeal to that base without offending other people, without offending more mainstream conservatives. And so through that, uh, Nixon was able to have one of the most historic election wins in U.S. history. And that became sort of the main tool of the GOP going forward. So now the question is, why isn't the Southern strategy working anymore? Why isn't it working the same way that it used to? Well, in some respects, it's, it uh, still is. And it has actually ex expanded well past the South. It's expanded 
into the Midwest, uh, into it's expanded north, it's expanded uh, all across the country. Uh, and the sort of dog whistling of the 70s has been uh, re re bleh, uh, replaced by a much more sort of overt appealing to those kinds of voters with people like Donald Trump. And yet we see all these elections that aren't going in the GOP's favor. And so the question is why? And a lot of this has to do with the fact that white Southerners aren't as big of a voting bloc as they used to be. Non-white Southerners who are overwhelmingly Democratic, we've seen some shift towards the GOP among uh, Latinos, Hispa Hispanics, but otherwise o overwhelmingly Democratic. We've seen them gain more prominence in voting. We've seen just their overall population going up. And that has helped a whole lot in getting more Democrats into the South. And as we've seen in a state like Georgia, we can use what happened there to create our own sort of Southern strategy to appeal to Democrats, progressives, liberals in the South to help move it out of the red wall and into the blue one. And I think that's going to be, if implemented correctly, a very, very successful strategy within the next decade. And I really look forward to seeing how that plays out. But uh, that is uh, the show. Thank you so much for watching. We'll be back in... I think three weeks is actually our next show after this. And uh, we'll, we'll be back in uh, November with some more news. For now, it's Moss Rightcats. That's the news. Good night.